Welcome to the 40th episode of the Epigenetics Podcast. My name is Stefan and I'm part of the technical support and marketing team of Active Motif. Our special guest for this episode is Sarah Diermeyer from the University of Otago. And I'm happy to talk to you now. Thank you, Sarah, for joining me today. Please let me quickly introduce you to our audience. Uh, you got your PhD at the University of Regensburg in 2013 in the lab of Gernot Lengst. You then moved on to do your postdoc in the lab of David Spector at Cold Spring Harbor. And since 2018, you now run your own lab as an assistant professor at the University of Otago in New Zealand. A question I like to ask every guest to start off our little podcast is, how did you become interested in biology in the first place and then in pursuing a career in science? Right. That's always an interesting question, isn't it? So I think for me, I was always a curious kid. I was always interested in how nature works and how things work around me. Uh, so this is kind of the curiosity, I guess, that's inert to who I am and who I've always been. How did I get into science and why am I a biochemist these days? And so I have some ties to cancer research. There is a bit more specific story behind that and it's reasonably personal and I guess also somewhat typical for, for many scientists in the field. So when I was a child, um, my auntie, uh, who was also my godmother, um, got colorectal cancer and shortly after died from the disease. And then just a couple of years after that, my grandmother also got cancer. And because my auntie had cancer just before her, she was really scared of getting into the hospital. So she stayed home with us and uh, we took care of her until the end. And again, I was relatively young at that age and it was a quite um, important experience for my life in hindsight, I think, um, in many ways. And I remember that I was very sad, but I was also really angry. And I just wanted to do something about cancer and just saving other families from the heartache that was associated with it and losing your loved ones. So I decided that I'm going to develop drugs that cure cancer, which of course, you know, <laughs> I was very young. It was a, a very lofty and uh, perhaps naive goal, um, but That's what it was. So I went to the library and tried to figure out how to become uh, a cancer researcher. And uh, the library told me after a few hours of studying that, mind you, this was in the 90s, right? So <laughs> there was no Google or something like that available. So I had to go to the library. Um, and I found out that there's this thing called biochemistry. And if you study that, then you will learn about how the body works and how enzymes work and how genes work too. And that sounded like a really good start for my goal. Um, so I decided uh, then and there that I will study biochemistry and then I'll also get a doctorate in biochemistry and then I'll go and work for pharma industry and make drugs and cure cancer. So that's where it started. Um, it's not entirely where I ended up, I guess, but also not too far away. Yeah, close enough, I would say. <laughs> <laughs> so is it that uh, those experiences now like decided your research career i mean your your work on exactly those cancers i mean it must be is it coincidental or is it like by design that you will study those cancers now? it is a bit of both really um i definitely did take the chance when i started my own lab to adjust my research perspective and expand my research to for example colorectal cancer so that's not entirely um, by accident um, but it is also due to 
where my research naturally evolved in a way. So that was just a logical step from where we were. And it's also about the research community here at the university who is very, very strong in colorectal cancer. And we have a lot of a good support network with lots of clinicians that are involved. And that really helps, of course, to strengthen your research. Yeah, coming to your research, in the early days of your research career, you were working on TTF1 and the ribosome RNA genes. Yes, those <laughs> and, on the, and on the other hand, you were working on nucleosome positioning in the content context of TNF alpha signaling. Right. While I don't want to, no, I don't want to go into the details of ribosomal genes. We have we had Tom Moss for that uh, on the show. Uh, if you want to, if there is something you want to share, nevertheless, we can do that um, anyway. But I, I was, I'm interested in nucleosome positioning. So what did you find in your um, paper that was uh, yeah, referring to the TNF alpha signaling and the nucleosome positioning? Right. So just to connect both of those studies that I did in my PhD, they were both somewhat around nucleosome positioning, really, and chromatin. Um, so it's while it seems like an odd combination, it actually made sense at the time. <laughs> <laughs> that was not obvious to find a connection here. Yes. Um, so nucleosome positioning. So we uh, wanted to see what happens if you treat um, human cells with TNF-alpha, what happens to chromatin structure, what happens to nucleosome positioning, and what happens to gene expression. So we tried to study all of these things using high-throughput sequencing, which, mind you, back in those days wasn't quite as established as it is now, where you can probably buy kits <laughs> for many of these essays. Um, so we, we really had to establish a number of methods for that, including the MNA sequencing that we did um, for the project to identify where our, where our chromatin is accessible, where our nucleosomes are sitting. And we found, and uh, that was quite interesting at the time, that there is very quickly, within minutes after addition of TNF-alpha, there is already a rearrangement of nucleosome positioning. And that seems to open up chromatin at the positions where the downstream signaling factors such as NF-kappa-beta are binding. So that was pretty cool that we could see that um, nucleosome rearrangement, opening up of transcription factor binding sites, then subsequently the binding of the transcription factors and also expression changes that were associated with that. Um, so that was quite nice at the time. I remember some some figures or some some methods where you were um, lining up all those agarose gels in in, <laughs> in the lab. Oh, and <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, did I mention that there was no kits available? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, very much. I remember those gels. So for our MNAs essays, there was uh, you basically had to um, digest the chromatin with MNAs in vivo. So you added it to cell culture and then ran it on a lot of gels. <laughs> <laughs> and then I had to cut mononucleosomes and we also cut di and trinucleosomes uh, from those gels and sequence them because we were wondering if we could get additional information from mono versus di versus trinucleosomes. But you're absolutely right. Way too many agarose gels. <laughs> In these, nowadays you would do ATAC-seq probably or would you still uh, pick MNAs-seq? I think both methods have their own advantages and disadvantages. Uh, so I'm happy with what we used at the time, but you are quite right that if I were to do another chromatin accessibility study right now, and as it happens, I am, <laughs> ataxic is in fact the way to go. So we are having um, a experiment in the lab ongoing um, on colorectal cancer and uh, with single cells. And what we're aiming to do there is do both single cell ataxic and single cell expression um, at the same time. And um, 
I can't tell you yet how it's yeah, going. Yeah, but we, we will come. We will come to your current work uh, <laughs> later on a little bit. Um, I also want to say. Um, so you were looking at like opening up of chromatin, but where there like more detailed analysis going on. So like nu nucleosome positioning at which positions you will find the nucleosomes, or was it just like yes. a general? Um, it was both. So we generally looked in the genome what happened and what we what we saw is what was this repositioning of nucleosomes around the transcription vector binding sites. But we also looked specifically at promoter regions, uh, for example, to see you know the plus one minus minus one nucleosome arrangements and seeing them move around to around uh, genes that were getting activated in this pathway. Um, so you could actually, and that's what I liked about it, that everything made sense, right? You add the stimulant to the cell, you see promoters being opened up and you see those genes being transcribed subsequently. Yeah, that's, then um, after your PhD, uh, you obviously looked for a postdoc position uh, because you had the plan to, <laughs> to be a famous scientist uh, after all. Um, then you moved on to David Spector's lab. So what were the crit criteria that made you pick his lab? Um, scientifically as maybe as well as non-scientifically. Yes. So me ending up in David's lab was a bit of a stroke of fate, really. Uh, so what happened was that at the end of my PhD, I, I wanted to go to one of those world-famous Cold Spring Harbor meetings. And um, what the best meeting in my field was the nucleus meeting. So I signed up for that. And I don't know how I managed to do that, but I somehow my abstract got selected for a talk. So that was probably the most exciting moment of my life up until then. <laughs> and I gave this talk in Grace Auditorium at Cold Spring Harbor. And I was very nervous, um, but I think it went reasonably well because after Woods. I went to the poster session and um, yeah, for full disclosure, I was probably onto my second or third glass of wine, you know, to drink away the nervosity of the talk. And, uh, and then David approached me and of course he was one of the organizers of that meeting and he just said it was a great talk. Um, what's your plan after your PhD? Because I sneakily said in my talk, And I'm at the end of my PhD and, you know, kind of looking at So, <laughs> so uh, because I already was on uh, some uh, second or third class of wine there, um, I replied to David Spector, uh, yeah, so I'm looking for a postdoc in the United States. Do you have one? <laughs> Which I probably wouldn't have done if I had been sober. But um, he said, yeah, I do. <laughs> <laughs> and then a few days later, we scheduled my formal interview and I gave another talk and had a chat with everyone in the lab. And And I just knew that that's where I belong. I just knew that this is this is what I want to do. I was planning on going to the United States anyways. And uh, yeah, being close to New York City was definitely a benefit there too. Uh, scientifically, of course, um, his lab did give me a lot of additional options to expand on my scientific skill set. Um, so we talked a bit about my PhD work and what we haven't uh, touched on there yet is that parts of my PhD um, were also about non-coding RNAs. So obviously ribosomal RNAs, kind of non-coding too, right? <laughs> um, but there was other um, projects, side projects that I had on non-coding RNAs and I thought they were so exciting and so interesting. And of course, that's what David La David's lab is working on um, are these long non-coding RNAs. So I had an opportunity to follow my passion And I also knew that I would go really close to cancer research uh, because this lab is doing things like organoid models, mouse models, and like actual collaborations with industry and uh, drug development in that space. So I knew that I could learn so much and add to my epigenetics experience from my PhD. Yeah, that's how it happened. So you focused then on long, non-coding RNAs in cancer, right? So one publication that came out 
from that time was published in 2016 in Cell Reports, and it was titled Memory Tumor-Associated RNAs Impact Tumor Cell Pro Proliferation, Invasion, and Migration. So indicating already that it's like a multifaceted study. Um, so what did you do and what did you find? So what do we do? Um, we set out to identify all long non-coding RNAs in breast cancer and to identify those that are actually good therapeutic targets going through them. So the way we did that is by using um, organoids derived from mouse models of breast cancer. And we performed RNA sequencing and uh, compared that to normal memory glands to identify upregulated transcripts. And then we systematically knocked these down. Now this was a little bit pre-CRISPR. <laughs> so nowadays we probably use CRISPR to do this systematically because that wasn't really just yet quite so available at the time, um, we used um, antisense oligos. So this was a collaboration with Ionis Pharmaceuticals and they kindly provided us with antisense oligos targeting all these link RNAs that we identified. So, so is this then a complete knockout or is this then knockdown? knockdown? Yeah. yeah, absolutely, it's a knockdown. And of course your knockdown efficiency and the phenotype you'll observe will depend on how good the antisense oligo is, right? So there's always this yeah. caveat. How many and long non-coding RNAs did you find? I mean, is it just like tens or <laughs> is it like hundreds? Uh, I mean- Ah, oh, no, it was in the tens. It was in the tens. So there is, of course, many hundreds that are upregulated in cancer, but not all of them are good therapeutic targets. And we really wanted to go down the cancer research lane. So we had a number of criteria to exclude targets that we, uh, link RNAs that we didn't think would be good targets. And then based on these criteria and a pretty tight uh, bioinformatics pipeline, we ended up with, um, yeah, in the tens. Uh, so not a manageable, a manageable number, but given that we screened many, many ASOs for each of those 10 candidates, we did end up uh, with a lot of 96 well and 384 well-based essays. <laughs> So that was a good labor times. Uh, <laughs> um, but we were able to get um, good knockdowns for most of our targets and then could characterize them further uh, using essays such as cell proliferation, invasion and migration essays. And also my favorite essay is anything in 3D. So we uh, used our organoids again that grow in this artificial extracellular matrix and are very, very close to both transcriptomically and phenotypically the, the actual tumor that they are derived from. And that way, the ASO treatment could really tell us something about the size of the organoids, the branching. So a lot of different phenotype measures that you can test at the same time. Um, and, and this is how we probed which of our link RNAs might be actually good targets in cancer going forward. And what was your takeaway from that study and the time in uh, Cold Spring Harbor? So what are, is there like the one link RNA that is maybe the <laughs> most important target or? <laughs> right. Um, yeah, I, I mean, there's um, a few that have been studied in detail. And one of the ones we worked on at Cold Spring Harbor and David said is Mallet one, which I still believe is one of the major regulators in this context. Um, and we published a separate paper on that where my colleague Gayatri Arun was the lead author. Uh, so I think that that is definitely one of the one of the best possible targets in cancer. Is there any that are equally good or potentially better? The answer is probably yes as well. Um, and and we have um, a handful of candidates that we are following up from that study that we think have potential for clinical development. And in this context, I will also shamelessly pitch um, 
one of my former colleagues, a PhD student in the lab, Kang Chi Chen's paper, which was very recently accepted in Nature Communications and is a follow-up on our sub okay. reports. So what is the, the mechanism on how the link RNA work? Is it uh, interaction with chromatin modifiers or how do they work? It's a great question and it really depends on the link RNA. So link RNAs are a super, super diverse set of non-coding RNAs and they can do many different functions. And the only way to find out what a particular link RNA does is by studying its mechanism in detail. As you said, many of them do act on a chromatin or epigenetic level. So there's a number that have been described to bind to chromatin modifiers, to transcription factors, uh, to other important epigenetics factors, and then to directly bind to chromatin, to the target genes and regulate their expression that way. There is also link RNAs that have been described in the context of splicing. And um, there is also a number now that uh, and constantly growing group really in the cytoplasm. And then of course, what are they doing in the cytoplasm, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. um, so there's there's a number of hypotheses, some mechanisms that have been shown. Um, there's a lot of post-transcriptional gene regulation ongoing, so they can bind to messenger RNAs and regulate the turnover as well as the translation efficiency of those messenger RNAs. And there's also all sorts of weird things going on like circular transcripts and Some of them make peptides and then is it really non-coding? Who knows, right? So <laughs> it's it's an emerging field and we still really don't know all of it or even probably most of it. <laughs> so um, you started in Germany, then you went to the US and your next step was uh, going to New Zealand. So uh, I think it's you can consider it like <laughs> a trip around the world. Um, so you set up now your own lab at the University of Otago in New Zealand. So what made you pick this university? Right. So um, there was a number of options for me after my postdoc. Um, there was the option to stay in the United States, as I was also a recipient of a K99 award at the time. There was the opportunity for me to go back to Germany, which was my original plan. <laughs> um However, in the end, it was uh, partially personal circumstances really that made me decide to come to New Zealand because I met my husband during my time in New York uh, at Cold Spring Harbor and he happens to be a Kiwi. And um, in considering what to do with your life and where to settle down and to potentially buy a house and have a family, I guess these are all things to take into consideration and um, his German isn't all that great <laughs> still? still still i know i know well he's trying but you know <laughs> it's not quite sufficient at this stage to live comfortably in germany where you really do have to speak german at least a little bit right <laughs> um so yeah it was a hard decision i'll be honest i i was pondering about it for quite a long time um, it was tempting to stay in the states um, it was tempting to go back home to Germany, but here I am in New Zealand. And in the end, it was a personal decision based on our family situation. It was also based on how comfortable I felt during my interviews. And I have to say that um, my colleagues in the Department of Biochemistry are just amazing. They are fun people. They are super collegial, super friendly, always happy to help. And I just had that feeling during my interview that they're a, a nice crew and I would fit right in. And I'm very glad that I did, because right now, gotta say that New Zealand is a pretty good choice <laughs> if you look around. <laughs> yeah, every, 
I see those uh, those backgrounds in in the Zoom uh, window that everybody uses, but <laughs> yours is real and not not like uh, a virtual background. So that's that's pretty nice. Yeah, we are very fortunate here that we can actually afford living by the ocean and are in a commuting distance to the university and um, and have been very very fortunate this year, of course, uh, being spared by uh, mostly spared by the pandemic as well. So yeah, it's, it's being a great an helps. Uh, being an island absolutely helps. Being on the other end of the world and far away from everyone helps. <laughs> so there was a, a few things we had going for us, but yeah, I'm, I'm very happy to be here. So um, coming back to, to the the way, the path you took. Um, so in Germany, uh, it's known that there are like research hubs. I mean, there is Heidelberg, there is um, the Greater Munich area. Then New York, of course, uh, Cold Spring Harbor is like a research hub, and and many scientists are there. And um, what is the research environment like in New Zealand. I mean, it's I basically yeah, it's I know not nothing real. about <laughs> it's, I know nothing about New Zealand. So that's why. Yeah, and, and I bet most people don't, right? So that's the problem. So maybe we should put it on the map, make it visible, right? We're Let's doing it now. <laughs> yes. So yeah, you're, you're completely right. New Zealand is not Munich or Heidelberg or New York. Um, but uh, we have a lot of things going for us too. So there are Uh, really good universities. We have fantastic students, so they have really potential to recruit really, really great students locally here. And um, as I said before, New Zealand is very collaborative, it's very friendly, it's very collegial, and that really sets it apart from more competitive countries such as the United States and Germany. And I really had a very different welcome here because you you don't have at least I haven't experienced it yet, um, a close competition between others in your field. And, okay, that might be easy for me because I'm the only person in the field in New Zealand. <laughs> 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 uh, but um, it, it was, uh, just to give you an, a, a direct comparison, it took me two months to get my hands on patient samples here in New Zealand. And it took me three and a half years to do the same thing in the United States, right? So this just gives you an impression of how happy people are to help you, to introduce you to new to others in the field and to just support each other in their science. So we are we do realize that we're a small country and the only way to be competitive globally is to work together. So this mm -hmm. is what New Zealand is really excelling in. And and to be honest too, we've got a pretty good work balance over here. <laughs> <laughs> So um, yeah, you, uh, I lost my track of thought, but train of thought. But um, yeah, you, you started now your own lab, and are those like the same principles that you want to run your own lab by? So being cooperative, working together, helping each other, or are there others that you also want to promote in your lab? Yeah, absolutely. So it's very important to me that the people in my lab get along well and are. Uh, collaborative and friendly with each other. I really think it makes such a huge difference when you go into the lab every morning. I mean, you spend so much time in the lab anyways, right? That you feel comfortable there. You feel the other people are your friends and they're always there to help you and support you. And there is no competition among lab members or, or things like that. So that's really important for me to have this supportive, friendly lab atmosphere, which I'm trying to promote actively. And I think so far it's been going really well. Very fortunate to work with a fantastic team of students and staff. And uh, for example, tomorrow we'll have our end of year celebration and we go uh, play laser tag. Oh. <laughs> uh, so we're what, looking forward to that. Fortunate that you can do that. <laughs> that <laughs> the other thing I'm trying to promote as a young PI is that um, academia is not the only option, which I think for, for many students and postdocs too um, is 
for some reason, new information. <laughs> um, so I try to, to guide everyone in my lab to find out where their passion lies, what they want to do afterwards. Is it a postdoc? Is it a professorship? Or is it potentially science communication or consulting or whatever it is, right? So I try to support everyone and in their career development and in their personal development and and um, we'll see how that goes. So your lab is relatively new. We already talked about that. Um, so there are no publications out there. At least I did not find one. <laughs> But can you maybe tell us something what you're working on right now? Uh, yes, I, mean, I can. It's all, un uh, <laughs> it's all unpublished, but so you don't need to go into it. It is all unpublished. I, I won't give away too much, but I can give you a broad overview um, of what we're doing. Um, so we are still working on our long non coding RNAs. We are still working in cancer, uh, but we have expanded, as you mentioned earlier, from breast to include also colorectal cancer. And um, we have established a number of new techniques in my lab that we didn't do in David Spector's lab uh, before. So a few things that we like to do is um, uh, we, we try to, again, go back to the cancer research and the drug development. So we do everything basically from target discovery that includes bioinformatics to target validation using CRISPR screening. So we do a lot of CRISPR screening of link RNAs now, as I said before, it wasn't possible <laughs> back when I started my postdoc, but so it's what, very much what does now. What does that mean? Is, is it just degrading the link RNAs or editing them as well? Um, it is um, knocking them down. So we do CRISPR eye screens, mm -hmm. which is for link RNAs really the Yeah, the, and, and I don't want to say it's the only option because there are other options, but I think it's the best option that we have in the link RNA field is to use CRISPR and uh, just use 10 guides per, per gene and um, hope that we get, at least with half of those guides, a knockdown that is sufficient to see a phenotype, right? And then this way we can screen hundreds, we can screen thousands of link RNAs at the same time and have a phenotypic readout that could be, again, um, cell growth, cell proliferation viability, um, but also include other measures. So how does this work? Is it uh, really like chopping them down, right? I mean, you guide them to the sequence and then it, they, they are chopped down? Uh, no. So CRISPR-I works by um, transcriptionally inhibiting the expression of the target gene. So we have a catalytically inactive Cas9 enzyme, so that Cas9 that's fused to a transcriptional repressor, usually a CRAB domain. And uh, what happens is that this is recruited to the promoter um, within, you know, minus 500 plus 500 or something like that, around the transcription start site to shut down the gene. And then DCAS9 itself already works like a sterical inhibition, like a roadblock, and then the transcriptional repressor adds to that so that the okay. gene is actually not being expressed. And again, it's a CRISPR interference, so it's not a complete knockout. It is only a knockdown, um, but it can work really, really well. Um, so you can get 80, 90% repression Okay. So, yeah. So working more on the long non-coding RNAs and also yeah. establishing um, cutting-edge techniques, right? Cutting-edge techniques yeah. because, they are, <laughs> because they are easier and more cheaper or because they are superior to what you used to do? Yeah, because they're cool. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> I'm gonna. I will fully admit that for some of my projects, um, I do them because I find them cool. Because <laughs> it's fun, and it's fun for the students to be uh, at the cutting edge of science, and also showing that we can do this in New Zealand, and you don't have to be in New York to do this. Um, but yes, because in the end, it's all driven by the end goal, which is trying to find therapeutic targets and new drugs um, in cancer. So it is the most efficient way. And these CRISPR screens are relatively time efficient. And uh, I'm not going to say they're cheap because they still involve high throughput sequencing, but they are um, relatively cost efficient given the amount of readout that you do end up with in the end. Um, yep. Now, so next to your... I, I, other there's something that you want to add to to the science um, um I, I want to interrupt to you. you sorry <laughs> just wanted to add a few um yeah. additional things um, that we're doing in the lab at the moment so target identification and things like that in the still in vitro in vivo studies also also mouse studies for example uh, we do have a new program on tumor evolution that we collaborate with computer science here, which is really cool, um, where we're doing a lot of single cell um, studies, single cell RNA-seq and others. And um, again, trying to be at the forefront of science and because it's cool. Okay. <laughs> and we really make best use of the access to clinical samples here, uh, which we do have an edge. Uh, I think just being close to the hospital, working really closely with clinicians and, and having access to these data sets is really really fantastic um, and mindful that we are on an epigenetics podcast. I do want to add that we are still very much interested in the mechanism by which these RNAs act. Um, and some of them we have identified to be epigenetic regulators, to be transcriptional regulators, uh, being in the nucleus, working on gene expression by binding to um, transcription factors and such, and some and others in the cytoplasm um, regulate RNA levels. So. Um, lots of different mechanistic studies going on as well, even though I don't uh, talk about them much today, but that is a big part of the lab as well. So yeah, we hope to read uh, some of those studies uh, in the coming future or in the... Yeah, near, I can tell you that one just got accepted and there's a few others that are currently being submitted and under revision. So hopefully in 2021, there will be plenty of papers from my lab. <laughs> I mean, we're recording this now in, uh, in the beginning of December 2020, but... Uh, uh, show will come out in early 2021 so maybe by the publishing maybe by then <laughs> fingers crossed <laughs> there will be something i wanted to touch briefly on a different topic i mean you you already mentioned that uh, that uh, family and uh, family was a big part of um, your decision to go to new zealand and uh, since coming to new zealand you also become a mom um, a mother of a son so um, yeah you live in New Zealand right now. Um, how are the regulations there? So how did you manage to get the family and your work under one one uh, head? With right. I don't know so, if that's a thing in the, in English, but... <laughs> <laughs> we'll make it one. <laughs> uh, yes, uh, great question. So I do have a son now. He is uh, 20 months old almost um, now, so very little still. And um, I had him in my second year as a PI, so I was pregnant in my first year as a PI, so I'm a really, really great employee. <laughs> 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 um, and um, I, one reason of um, not staying in the United States was too that I was a little bit concerned about how I will manage to have a family and a lab at the same time. And as I mentioned earlier, work-life balance is really pretty good here in New Zealand. So it is understood that everyone has a family. It's understood that sometimes you need to be flexible with your work arrangements and that you might not be as efficient and you might not be working as hard when you have a little one at home. And it is also not expected of you that you go back straight 
to work the day after your delivery, something like that. <laughs> so um, I'm, I'm not going to say that it's easy because it's not as hard. Um, and I think it's always hard if you're trying to manage a team of people, uh, be it as a PI or in any other context, and also the parent of a little child. So it is, it is hard. It is hard to, you know, it's, it's always this, this mom guilt. And I'm sure there's the same thing for dads. I don't know if you've got dad guilt, but I, I'm sure that's a thing too, <laughs> that you always try to be doing the best for your job, but you also try to be the best parent. You try to be there for your child every minute of the day, but also you have to be there for your team and for your science and drive that forward. So that it's a, it's a balancing act. And um, oftentimes um, oneself falls a bit short. So it's, it's hard to find time for yourself. So things like yeah. I, I used to exercise a lot and I just don't have the time for that anymore, for example. Right. So priorities change for sure. So just tell me when it, this gets too personal, I don't want to expose too much, <laughs> but I still have some questions. So, um, yeah, I, th I think there are conflicting interests, right? I mean, that's not, mm -hmm. not, not very, very nice set, but um, there are conflicting interests because you are, I, I often see it that when you're a PI, you're like a little company of your own, right? You try to run your own lab and you be, try to be successful. And when you start your lab and then, uh, right, one year or in the second year, you, you, your mother, then you really want to, or you need to do a lot of stuff and then you get pregnant and you're away. Um, yeah. Um, how did that influence your, your, your startup in, in the lab? How long yeah, did, you, honest, did you stay home? I did stay home. Yes. Not how very long. long. Um, no. I stayed home for eight weeks um, after delivery. And, um, and in hindsight, I'm going to say I was a bit short and I wish I had stayed at home for another month or maybe went back part-time first before I went back full-time because I went back full-time after, after those eight weeks. Um, but at the time, I also felt like, as you said, I just started my lab. I need to support my students, right? I have, at that stage, I had three PhD students who had just started a couple of months before I gave birth. So I need to be there. I need to support them. They need my help. And they did need my help. <laughs> right? So they, they, they actually did need me to be there and help them in the lab, at the bench. So these were not necessarily things that I could manage easily from home via Zoom. Many things were, but some things just were not. Um, so I think that's what I had to do at that time. Although, to be honest, if I had stayed home for another month or so, probably the world would still stand as it is. <laughs> um, so... It was definitely a balancing act and um, and the timing maybe wasn't perfect, but then again, is it ever? <laughs> yeah. So what are the, the things that, that New Zealand or the university offer for you? I mean, if you go back uh, to work after eight, eight weeks, I mean, there must be something uh, that helped you uh, manage all this. Yeah, for sure. So the university um, here was really good. They offer a full year of maternity leave that you can take, um, which obviously I didn't take, but there's the option too if you wanted to. And um, what I was able to do is uh, move or transfer part of my parental leave to my husband, who is also an employee at the university. So I stayed home for two months and then I transferred some of my maternity leave to him. And then he stayed home for two months as well. So this way, at least one of us could be home with the little one before um, my son started daycare. And then we do have a daycare on campus that's literally two minutes door to door from my office, which is very handy. And uh, when he was little, I did visit him over lunch every day um, to feed him and to play with him and to be with him. So there was 
that was definitely really good to have that opportunity right there on campus. Is there something that you would have needed and didn't exist or something that you would like to see improved? Um, yes, I'm sure there is. Nothing's perfect just yet. And I still think there could be more support for especially new mothers when they go back to work. There are just some things. I mean, it's always difficult to be a new parent, right? Uh, and you know what I'm talking about. But uh, I think there's some additional needs that um, new moms have. For example, if they are breastfeeding and need to pump milk on a regular schedule. Um, luckily, I have my own office, so that wasn't an issue. But I know from some of my colleagues that they don't. And then it's difficult, you know, to find the space and the time, especially when you're doing lab work um, for that. It would have also been nice if, um, there was had been some sort of relief from my teaching duties, for example. Oh, yeah. So that I, I didn't, it could have been, you know, um, a research or teaching fellow or something like that who could help out a bit with some of that. Um, things like marking theses or uh, marking exams. And mm -hmm. I, I, I did still mark exams like uh, two days before I went to the hospital. So I, I don't know that that was necessary, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I did it because I knew it was expected of me and it's part of my job. Um, but um, do you really need to mark exams when you're 39 weeks pregnant? I'm not sure. So yeah. there, there's definitely something that if if I was the vice chancellor and I knew that there is some new moms in the university, there is some things that I would probably offer that weren't necessarily offered to me. Yeah. Is there something that you can t can or want to tell young female scientists uh, who want to start a career in science uh, now <laughs> with your experience? Yeah, do it. <laughs> 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 do it. Absolutely do it. If you have a passion for science, if you're doubtful at all, if you can do it or you can't do it, you can. You absolutely can do it. It's possible. You have to be determined. And uh, I'm not saying it's easy, but it's absolutely possible. And if you're worried about having a family and being a professor or being a PI, don't be. You can do both. And I don't know that there is a perfect time to have kids if this is something you'd like to do. Do it as a PhD student if you feel the time's right, or as a postdoc, or as a PI. The time's never perfect, as I said before. Uh, but don't be scared because everything can be managed. Um, and as you as you can see, I managed, right? <laughs> so I, my my son is now almost two, and my lab is growing. It's uh, we've got ten people at the moment. We are, I think, reasonably successful for uh, the short time that we've existed. And um, my son's growing and is happy and healthy as well, as far as I can tell. So don't be scared. Do it. You can do it. So to finish off this interview, I have two more general questions, um, as I always, the same ones as I always have. Um, did you at one point of your career face a situation that you reached at that end and did not know what to do or to, how to proceed to unravel the questions you wanted to answer? Or was there ever uh, like a, a way to go? Um, you know, I don't think there was for me. I have to say that my science was pretty straightforward. And um, if there ever, I mean, there were challenges in the lab as there are for everyone, but there was nothing, any, there was no, at no point was there an obstacle that I did not see how I could possibly overcome. Not in the lab, anyways. <laughs> and not, maybe there was like one day, oh no, I need to do like 20 gels today, but, uh, <laughs> but that's. Yeah, I've mean, had many gels and not always happy. And uh, I can definitely tell you the tale of my three months that it took me to get a Western blood working during my PhD. I'm still traumatized by all the time I made stable CRISPR cell lines and then they all have mycoplasma and I had to throw away six months worth of work. So yeah, there's that. <laughs> But it never felt like an unsurmountable problem, if that makes okay. sense. Yeah, it does. 
So in the beginning, we were talking about, oh, how can we fill this time? Now we have 45 minutes and we have taken a journey through your scientific career. Can you maybe give a short summary about what you now consider being your most important finding or what we might have missed? And um, yeah, I didn't pick up uh, on PubMed. My most important finding, um, I think there's a few that are pretty cool, but overarchingly, everything I've done from starting my master's thesis really to now is that gene expression is very complex, <laughs> regulated on many different levels, and we still only understand a fraction of what's going on. The other thing is that link RNAs are really cool. I mean, that's a very good, <laughs> a very good statement <laughs> to end this interview. Thank you, Sarah, for your time and for being on this show. Thank you so much for having me today. This was the 40th episode of the Epigenetics Podcast. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. Please rate, review and subscribe to our podcast so you never miss an episode. We are happy to receive your feedback on Twitter, Facebook or LinkedIn. We will read all your reviews and comments and give you a shout out on a future episode. If you have any further questions, you can also reach me at podcast.activemotif.com. For more great epigenetics content, check out the Active Motif blog Motivations at activemotif.com slash blog. Thanks for listening and stay tuned.